Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 9th, 2011. All right, so the downside of doing daily radio is that you live your life a little bit in a fishbowl. Talk about this in a second. I'm going to take a sip of my decaffeinated Earl Grey. And I drink decaffeinated in the afternoon so I could sleep at night, just so you know. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And uh, we like to think that we're, this is an educational outreach, if you would. Um, and at times we try to have a little bit of fun. Now, that being said, uh, at the at the opening of the program, I talked about living my life in a fishbowl a little bit. I, I do what I can to keep as much of my private life private. I mean, it's what's the point of having a private life if you can't keep it private? But um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that uh, today the Roseboro family was kind of dealt a, um, an unexpected wild card. And uh, that is that uh, my brother Mark uh, had to go into the hospital. He had the effects of uh, the symptoms of what looked like a mini stroke. And as it turns out, it uh, it wasn't exactly a stroke. Um, they did an MRI and they found a tumor in his uh, in his brain, uh, in his uh, left frontal lobe. Now, I, I don't know that much about. Uh, brain tumors, uh, and uh, what I do know about them uh, was uh, I kind of learned by watching what happened with Matt Chandler and uh, his very public fight with his brain tumor and with cancer. So here's the deal. Um, We don't know if it's cancerous. We don't know if it's just a mass. We don't know nothing. And if we don't know if it's encapsulated or not encapsulated, we are kind of at the moment... um, just in the dark. And so uh, early next week, my brother will uh, be going under the knife and uh, and be having basically having brain surgery to remove the ter- tumor. And then uh, they will assess what is going on and, uh, you know, try to determine a course from there. That being said, um, today's uh, it's if I sound a little bit distracted, well, that's the reason why. Now, um, my brother, I, I talked to him today. He's in pretty good spirits. Everyone around him is a wreck. But uh, my brother's name is Mark. And uh, just so you all know, he is a believer. So 
um, you know, that you don't have to pray for him in that sense. But he has he he has asked me specifically if uh, if I knew of a prayer chain that we could activate because, quite frankly, he's a bit nervous. And uh, and this is not a, a, an easy time for him, nor his family, his kids, and his wife. And so, um, if y- y'all would take a moment to pray for my brother Mark Roseboro, and uh, I, I truly would appreciate it, and so would he. Now, with that news, pretty much everything I had on deck to talk about today. I am really not in a mental state to be able to talk about it. Um, as a result of it, I I don't want to do, I, I don't want to do a program that isn't up to snuff. So uh, I've decided to call in a substitute teacher, and uh, and I'm going to invoke an emergency light edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I listened to this earlier today, and it was my intention to actually play this during the sermon review time, but. Uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley of Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent, recently, just a couple weeks ago, preached a wonderful sermon entitled Sacrilege and the Savior. And the biblical text is taken from the epistle of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 10 uh, through chapter 2, verse 2. And this is a fantastic sermon to be passing along to you today. Uh, especially with this in mind, that uh, Pastor Charmley nails it. He, in this sermon, talks about and warns about super apostles. And many of the people that we review here on Fighting for the Faith technically would fall into this category of super apostles or super Christians, uh, people who've somehow come up with secret knowledge to figure out how to uh, to become the you know these super-duper high-level victorious... Christians and uh, Pastor Charmley in the sermon, biblically and rather forcefully, just takes that concept apart. And he does a fantastic job. And the one thing he really does well in this sermon is preach Jesus. And he preaches Jesus often, and he preaches him all throughout the whole sermon. And this is exactly what. I need to hear, and even what you need to hear. Me right now in a in a very dire hour, um, and you right now in preparation for your coming dire hours. I can't think of a more appropriate thing to play on Fighting for the Faith today, especially with the news that uh, my family's received, than a sermon like this. So without any further ado, and there will be no interruptions, and I will just play the music at the end, Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in his sermon entitled, Sacrilege and the Savior. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the first epistle of John, reading from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 11. That's 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 11. John is writing this epistle to a group of churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, 
who have been affected by a group of false teachers who are saying that they have superior teaching, that they are sort of super Christians and they want other people to follow them. John is writing and saying, no, there are no such things as super Christians, but all Christians are on the same level. And there is only one teaching, and that is the Apostles' teaching. So, 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him, and declare to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And we trust God's blessing to rest on this solemn portion of his most holy word. Our text this morning is found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The great burden 
on John's heart as he writes this epistle is that we need Jesus. That the whole world needs Jesus. You note how he goes on after saying we have an advocate. He says he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. The world needs Jesus. And the false teachers were saying that Jesus just gets you in and then you're on your own. But John says no, we need Jesus every moment, every day. Throughout our lives and for eternity, we need Jesus. We need that holy, meek, unspotted Lamb who from the Father's bosom came. We need the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We need Jesus. We must have Jesus. The Gospel is not just what gets us in to Christianity. It's not just the entrance. And there are some people who talk like that. They say, well, you need the gospel when you're outside of Christ. But then you believe the gospel and that's it. You don't need the gospel anymore. John says, no, you need the gospel every day. Every moment you need the gospel. Every moment you need to hear of the Lamb of God who died for sinners. You know, he's writing to Christians here. And he talks about the Gospel, the one, the Lamb of God, who is the propitiation for our sins. If we walk in the light, chapter 1 and verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the Gospel every day. The Gospel every day for the Christian. Jesus taught us a daily prayer. That's to be a pattern. We call it the Lord's Prayer. We use it every Sunday morning. And in the course of that pattern for prayer, after we have said, give us this day our daily bread, after we've prayed for life's daily necessities, then we add and forgive us our trespasses going from the daily necessity of the body the daily necessity of forgiveness the daily necessity of pardon in the gospel so we need the gospel for all of life and John has these false teachers in mind who are saying well he repeats three of their false claims here the first one is they said we have fellowship with Christ we have fellowship with God, they said, and they walked in darkness. In other words, they said we have these great mystical experiences, but their lives showed they didn't know God at all, because they didn't live as those who know God, but they lived as those who don't know God. They lived in daily transgression of the law without any prayer for pardon, without any thought they needed pardon because they go, he goes on to say the second thing they said is we have no sin they said we have no sin, we're sinless they claim to be sinlessly perfect and John says you look at those people here they are flaunting themselves saying how perfect they are you shouldn't be looking at them with envy but with pity because if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves they're deluded. 
They really think they're sinless, but they're deluded. They don't know a thing about themselves. And finally he comes to this claim, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. These people were saying, we haven't sinned. Now, they weren't saying we haven't ever sinned. They were saying that since we received this special anointing that made us into super-Christians, we've never committed a single sin. That's what they were saying. They had these high claims, but low lives. High professions, but low realities. And underneath it all, a false view of God and a false view of sin. And so we have, John deals first of all, with the sacrilege of saying that you have not sinned. Secondly, with the saints, the true Christians. And thirdly, he brings us to the Saviour, the one who makes saints, the one upon whom we rely day by day. So first we have this great sacrilege to claim, we have not sinned. Here were these people who had left the church, set up their own meeting and they were saying, look at us, we're sinless, we're perfect. And look at you, you fall short every day, you fail, but we're perfect and so you should join us. That's what the false teachers were saying. And it's something that false teachers always do. They come and they say, well look, your church is all very well. Yes, this little fellowship of believers where you meet is all very well. And the gospel, you know, that's a good teaching, but you know there's something more. Come to us and you'll have something better than you've got in the fellowship you're in at the moment. We have a deeper knowledge, they said, and this is why people started calling teachers like this Gnostics, from a Greek word meaning to know. Because these people said, oh, we know these things that nobody else does, and you come with us and we can teach you. And John says, no, this is a delusion, this is sacrilege in fact. Any time you come across people claiming to be super-Christians, claiming there is something different in nature between them and other Christians, and they are better than ordinary run-of-the-mill believers who are simply cleansed by the blood of Christ, you should run and keep away from such people because they are false teachers and they are liars. That's what the cults do, isn't it? The cults say, we are better, we are super-Christians. Join us and we have special knowledge. They may have their own special books, like the Mormons. Or they may have an inspired authority somewhere, like the Jehovah's Witnesses have their governing body. They may claim to have a leader who is a modern-day apostle. Or to have a load of modern-day apostles and prophets and special revelations. And we keep away from such because we know that they are deluded. But it's not only the cults and cult-like movements that redefine sin. See, these people are saying, we haven't sinned. And there are several ways of doing it. The first is that 
that these people actually were taking, which is saying, we have not actually committed any personal sin since we received this special anointing we have. And John later on goes on to say, no, every Christian has the anointing, because every Christian has received the Holy Spirit. That's one way, but another way, and the most common way probably, is to redefine sin. So somebody comes and says, I haven't sinned, and you say, well what about this? They say, well that's not a sin. There was a group in the early church who believed that whatever they did, it wasn't a sin. However much it might have been a sin in somebody else. So they said, because we have been changed, whatever we do isn't sinful. So you come to them and you can say, well what about that bill you haven't paid for six months, and you said you would, and they say, oh I'm never going to pay that because I've been cleansed. Well, is that a sin? Oh no, no, it can't be a sin because I can't sin. So if you start off by saying you can't sin, then obviously nothing you do is a sin. And there are actually people who believe that. But the other thing is to say that a particular action is not a sin. A few years ago I was at a uh, training week in Wales and there was another minister there who would, uh, before he'd become a pastor in the, the church he was in, before he'd gone to Bible college, he'd sought ordination in one of the historic denominations. And he had preached his trial sermon and uh, the body who were assessing him and said, no, we cannot recommend you because you talk too much about forgiveness. And I, I thought, hang on a minute, how can you possibly say that a man talks too much about forgiveness? But you see, the answer was that these people had so redefined sin that they didn't think anybody needed forgiveness. So here's this man saying, Christ, God offers in Christ the pardon of your sins. And here are these men who are supposed to be leaders in the church, start back in, oh, you can't say that, because people don't have sins. We say that, we make God a liar, says John. And of course people can do that with individual sins. And say, well, we have said that such and such a thing has been a, a sin, but it isn't really. Such and such a behaviour has been regarded as sin for 2,000 years, but, and more, but it isn't really a sin. And that's how you can say that you have not sinned. I know of a man who was a pastor who committed adultery, left his wife, and when asked about it, he said, well, that's not a sin. I haven't sinned, he said, because I'm only doing what comes naturally. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. See, redefining sin. And that's how people can say we haven't sinned. And the awful truth is that's a sacrilege, because God has spoken. God has not left us to guess what is good or bad. He has given us the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws, and of course our Lord's summary of the law. And those show us what is good and what is bad. And so if somebody says, well this behaviour is not a sin, 
then what they're saying is when God said it was, he wasn't telling the truth. Now, these people wouldn't say that God was lying. In fact, they say, no, God never lies, God can't lie. But John says, look, if you say that what God has said is sinful is not sinful, then you're saying God's a liar. And of course the Apostle Paul would reply at that point, let it never be, let God be true, and every man a liar. Lies have defined Satan. Satan is the father of lies. And here were these people speaking in such a way, and if anybody says they haven't sinned, if anybody speaks of a sinful behaviour, sinful behaviour as though it's not sinful, a sinful act as though it's not sinful, then you're claiming that God is like the devil. That God lies. God is truth, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So John has spoken of God in his essence, in himself. That God is light. And yet here they were saying, in fact, God is darkness. It's a sacrilege, it's blasphemy for somebody to say, I haven't sinned. It's blasphemy. And it demonstrates that those who speak like that are not Christians. His word is not in us. His, not, his word is not in those people who say, I haven't sinned. But we mustn't just think in terms of individual people. John is talking, thinking in terms of assemblies, of congregations. If you've got a congregation, an assembly that claims to be a Christian church and yet denies the law of God and says that the law of God is wrong, that certain things are, that God has said are sinful are not sinful, that isn't the church because his word is not there. These men who said to this young man who was called to the ministry, who said, you can't talk about forgiveness, they were demonstrating that if, if their congregations agreed with them, their congregations weren't churches. Because the gospel wasn't there. Because the gospel is God's word of forgiveness. And forgiveness only comes to sinners. The men who say we haven't sinned are saying with the Pharisees, we are righteous. And we wish to stand before God on the basis of our own merits. No man can do that. No man can do that. So that hymn we sang in old Zinzendorf, he says, When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, in then shall this be all my plea. Jesus has lived, has died for me. We've got no other plea. We can't come and say, I haven't sinned to God because God will say, you wicked person, and cast you into hell. No, we come to God and we say, Christ has died, that I may call him mine. And so we come to the real saints, the real Christians, the people who really are God's. My little children, says John. 
These things I write to you so that you may not sin. See, somebody might say, well look John, you're saying that everybody sins. Are you not making light of sin? John says, ne- never. Never can we make light of sin because Jesus died for sinners. Sin is so serious, the only way God could deal with our sins is to give up his only begotten son to suffer and die on the cross in our place. The cross declares how terrible sin is. But the true Christian is a saint, a holy person, sanctified, made only by God. And he's not a slave to sin. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. But the Christian isn't a slave of sin. So he can't say, well, Christians sin. He says, no, Christians are holy people who seek not to sin, who seek to live as Jesus lived, who seek to walk as Jesus walked, who seek a Christ-like life. We aim for sinlessness and we fight against sin if we are Christians. The Christian aims to be sinless. Well, someone might say, well John, you've just said, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. We say God's a liar. And John would say yes. Yes. The Christian in this life is always fighting against sin. And the Christian in this life is never absolutely perfect and sinless. But he's trying to be. He is trying to be perfect. He is trying to be like God. He is trying to live like Christ. The choice is not between a false perfectionism that says we can be perfect in this life and a wicked antinomianism that says well we can't be perfect so we can just commit all manner of sin. The choice is between striving with sin and giving in to sin. What these people who said we don't sin had done was they'd given in. They stopped fighting and they were deceiving themselves and telling lies about God. But the Christian, well Martin Luther has an expression, he said the Christian is simultaneously at the same time righteous and a sinner. He's righteous in Christ, but he still commits sin. And yet he is fighting against that sin. He is daily confessing that sin. He is seeking to put that sin to death in his mortal body. There is a combat. We fall short. And God has made allowance. As God has not made allowance for sin, he's made provision for sins. He hasn't made allowances. You know, you make allowances, means you put some elasticity in the, in the rules. Make allowances for this. I'm told that because car speedometers are not completely accurate, they make some allowances in speed cameras. So it's got, it's not, you're doing 31 miles an hour in a 30 zone, the speed camera flashes. It's a little over that because they have to make allowances for the inaccuracy of the instruments. That's making allowances. God hasn't made allowances for sin. Not at all. His law is absolutely inflexible and it demands absolute perfection. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's a provision for sin, to take it away, to cleanse our sin by the blood of Jesus. That's a provision. So the Christian doesn't go and say, well, nobody's perfect and so I can commit this sin. The Christian strives against it and when he or she falls, if he or she falls, comes straight to the cross. There is no barrier between you and the cross of Jesus Christ. No barrier. You do not have to perform some great work to come to the cross. You do not have to perform some penance. We're in a situation, some, sometimes Christians could be like Naaman, the Syrian, who came to the prophet's door, and the prophet sent a servant to say, go wash seven times in Jordan. And he was outraged, such a simple thing. And his servant said to him, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? See, sometimes we want God to give us some great thing to do to prove our penitence. But he hasn't given us such a thing. He has said, go to Jesus with your sin, the same way you did at first, and the blood will cleanse you. I once came across a, a man who had been an evangelical and still was really in his heart who had committed a great sin and he felt that he would have to have some great indication from God that he had been forgiven that he could be forgiven before he could come back to God it's a terrible situation to be in because it's so false there is a great thing that God has done to show that he will pardon you and me he has given up his only begotten son to die on the cross. That is the great sign that God has given to tell us that he will forgive. We have an advocate with the Father. Do you see those words? We have an advocate not with the judge, but with the Father. I am the one responsible for the quote in the... in the bulletin from John Stott where he says once the sinner has been justified by God his judge has entered the family of God and become related to God as his father if he should sin he does not need another justification from a divine judge this is assured of him this is assured to him through the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous a constant expression indicating his human character Jesus messianic office Christ and righteous character in the picture of a righteous advocate standing before the Father on our behalf, the case is not that of love pleading with justice, rather the opposite, justice pleads with love for our release. That is, we are coming not to the judge but to our Father. Now the judge sits on his throne of justice and the judge is concerned with punishment. But, the Father sits on his seat as Father, ready to receive his child who has sinned against him. And Jesus comes as the righteous advocate, 
and pleads with the Father for us, not against us. For Jesus has borne the penalty of sin. He has suffered for us. And he says to the Father, by his hands and by his side, by his wounds received on Calvary, he declares the penalty is paid, the pardon bought. And you can come to God. And you can come this very moment. If you are laboring under the remembrance of a sin, our old Archbishop Cranmer was so right when he penned the words in the general confession of the Church of England of sin, the remembrance of them is grievous unto us. We remember what we have done against God and the remembrance is grievous and is painful. But the pardon is sweet and wonderful. It's so easy, you see, to stay with the remembrance of sin and not to go to Calvary and the remembrance of pardon. We stay with the remembrance of sin only we mourn and we suffer. And we grow under the burden. But if we go on to the remembrance of Calvary, we come to the Lord's table as we truly ought. And we come to the remembrance of that sin being taken away, the remembrance of the blood. Then we are no longer groaning. But we are rejoicing in the Lord Jesus, rejoicing he has died for me. Rejoicing in the blood. That's where we are if we go on from the remembrance of sins to the remembrance of Calvary. The remembrance of pardon bought once for all in that place if we come back to the blood. And Jesus is the only hope. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's not saying that he's a propitiation who will actually save the world. He's saying he's the only propitiation in the world. You go through the whole world looking for a propitiation, you won't find one. Except on Calvary. Except in Jesus. There's no other propitiation. Go to the angels in heaven and they will say there is none. All the prophets and they will say there is no propitiation but one. John the Baptist points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb. And he alone is the propitiation. There's no other. Now what is a propitiation? A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. Now God's wrath is not like our anger which so often is irrational. We are angry without a cause. We are angry with our brother. And we should not be. God's wrath is holy and just. And it is a settled determination in God that he will punish sin. And he will deal with that sin that is an offence against his holy character. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that wrath is there. Oh, what a wonder it is. That wrath fell not, not 
upon the sinner but upon the substitute not not on the one who sinned but on the one who is sinless oh what a marvel it is that it is so that it is so him I could put it this way oh Christ what burdens bowed thy head our load was laid on thee thou stoodest in the sinner's stead didst bear all ill for me a victim led thy blood was shed now there's no load for me that's a propitiation that's a propitiation death and the curse were in our cup or Christ was full for thee thou hast drained the last dark drop tis empty now for me that is a propitiation it is Christ taking the wrath of God God is propitious unto us and of course it's not that Jesus had the idea for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the love of God supplied the sacrifice not that God said to man now I am wroth with you and you must find something God said I am wroth with you and behold my son behold the substitute whom I give and Jesus Christ said behold I come to bear that penalty for all my people for all who will trust in him have an advocate with the father we have a revelation of divine love in the Lord Jesus a revelation not of the love of the Son only, but of Father, Son and Holy Spirit working together for salvation, together for cleansing. And of course Jesus is God. It is God who bore the penalty. It is God who smote in man for man the foe. It is God who underwent that suffering for you and for me. That we might be cleansed from our sins. That our sins might be taken away and God's smile shone upon us. It is a wonderful thing to contemplate that God is light. But a far more wonderful thing to contemplate that God is love. John will come to that later on but opening hymn I, uh, we sang number 20 it's one of the most beautiful hymns that I know it starts off with the majesty of God oh God how wonderful thou art thy majesty how bright the glory of God the marvel of God and yet the wondrous thing is verse 5 and yet I may love thee too O Lord almighty as thou art because God has loved us and given his son to be that propitiation that is the marvel of the gospel and that is what it is moves the Christian to seek not to sin for we behold the love of God the law comes with its whip and the law can only make people resentful because the law can't change the heart the law says do this and live and the sinful heart says no I won't I will do the opposite 
because I do not like God. The sinful heart is against God. His enmity to God and it cannot do the law of God. But the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is different. Because the gospel comes with the message, comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's nothing else but the power of God to salvation. The message of Jesus crucified comes with the Holy Spirit's energies. You and I cannot convert a single soul. I could preach with the tongue of an angel. I could speak with all the eloquence that man is capable of and nobody would ever be converted. We might have a regiment of angels preaching the gospel in Hanley every week and nobody would be converted unless the power of God was there, unless the Holy Spirit works. And we leave it to God at that point. We proclaim the word. I was up there on a Thursday outside the pottery centre and the hardness on the faces of the people, even the people who stopped to listen was evident. The mockers, the scoffers, and I leave them with God. For he is able to use his own word of Jesus crucified. They heard the gospel. And we know not what the gospel will do in their lives, but we know this. He is able. He is the propitiation. Christ is the one who saves us from our sins. And because we sin, we need Jesus. We are not to be like those foolish men whom we pity, who said we have no sin, because they're self-deceived. Not like those foolish men who we pray for because they blaspheme and say we haven't sinned. We pray that the Spirit would convict them of sin. We're not to be like them, but we are to be as the saints of God, those who confess our sins, who seek not to sin, who strive to sin even to the shedding of blood. And God has provided pardon for everyone who sins, that you may at the moment you are conscious of sin bring it to Jesus. And it will be taken away. And you will be cleansed. And at the last, we shall come to his eternal throne. And we shall come as Count Zinzendorf puts it, even then, shall this be all my plea. Jesus has lived, has died for me. Amen.